Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella, Episode 3, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, by Maya Angelou. A free bird leaps on the back of the wind, and floats downstream till the currents end. And dips his wings in the orange sun rays, and dare to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The free bird thinks of another breeze. And the trade winds soft through the sighing trees. And the fat worms waiting on the dawn bright lawn, and he names the sky his own. But a cage bird stands on the grave of dreams, and his shadow shouts on a nightmare scream. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown, but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. Welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we're going to be taking a look at one piece of literature, dissecting it, analyzing it, and determining whether or not it is worthy of its reputation. I am Tom Panneries. Uh, with me, as always, is my lovely co-host. Please say hello to... Stella, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I feel more important than Vanna because I get to do more than spin letters around. She doesn't even spin the letters <laughs> anymore. She just kind of touches, touches it and it just appears. Yeah. Well, she's got the magic touch, I guess. I guess so. So this is our third episode. Last month we had done The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams. And at the end of every episode, which we will do again this episode, one of us chooses next episode's book. And um, last time it was my turn and I chose I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, which is really one of those 20th century memoirs that is up there, I think is one of kind of the the hallmarks of of that genre in in the in the latter half of the 20th century 
It was written in 1969, and it is taken from, the, the title of the book is taken from a poem by uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Sympathy. I know what the caged bird feels, alas, when the sun is bright on the upland slopes, when the wind stirs soft through the springing grass, and the river flows like a stream of glass, when the first bird sings and the first bud opes, and the faint perfume from its chalice steals, I know what the caged bird feels. I know why the caged bird beats his wing till its blood is red on the cruel bars, for he must fly back to his perch and cling when he fain would be on the bough a swing. And a pain still throbs in the old, old scars, and they pulse again with a keener sting. I know why he beats his wing. I know why the caged bird sings. Ah, me, when his wing is bruised and his bosom sore, when he beats his bars and he would be free, it is not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that he sends from his heart's deep core, but a plea that upward to heaven he flings. I know why the caged bird sings. Back at the beginning of when we opened the episode after the, you know, as part of our opening, I played a part of her reciting a poem that she wrote in uh, in the, the 70s or 19, it was published in 1983 called Caged Bird, which is kind of a variation on the Dunbar poem of what, you know, the caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown, but long for still and his tune is heard on the distant hill for the caged bird sings of freedom. So... This is a book that is, I don't really need to get too much background on the author because this really is her, one of several autobiographies. It was almost like she wrote a series of memoirs, but this is one of the first that really put the genre on the map as, as we know it. And she would go on to acclaim to the point where she read a poem at the inauguration of President Bill Clinton in 1993 and was just one of the most prominent African-American authors, African-American women authors as well, uh, right up there with, I'd say, like Toni Morrison throughout the, the latter part of the 20th and the 21st century. She recently passed away a couple of years ago, I believe. And um, so we're going we're gonna to sit down and take a look at this, uh, at this book. But before I get to anything about the book, what's your, what's your history uh, with this one? <laughs> well, uh, I think I sort of showed my hand at the end of the last episode with my history because I had known of Maya Angelou, but this is actually the first that I had ever read of hers unless, you know, I had read some poem and had <laughs> blanked it from my mind and I don't recall. But when you had mentioned it, I thought to myself, well, boy, I've never heard of this before. So this is similar to the previous episode where the history was this time. Uh, this is, yeah, I'm forging a new path here, and it uh, it begins now. So uh, this is one that I read in, uh, in high school, actually. Uh, I read this in 11th grade. Uh, I hadn't read it in about... 
20 some odd years by the time I actually picked it up again to, to read it, um, and, and do the notes and all the stuff we've been doing. And, um, so I hadn't really remembered much of it, <laughs> to be honest with you. So it, it, this was sort of new for me too. It's not like of mice and men, which I hadn't read in a very long time, but was very, very vivid in my mind. Uh, this was junior year of high school. I read a good, like we read like a good six or seven books in junior year of high school. So they, some of which stood out, some of which kind of blur together. So it's one of those, one of those academic years where you know you read this, and you know you did whatever you had to do for whatever assessment was coming up. But once the test was over, it went out the window. And it's not an insult to the book. It's just you know I think how your mind works sometimes, especially when you're a student. So what I'm going to do right now is uh, go through the plot, and then Stella and I have uh, put some questions together. We're going to have our usual discussion. We'll take you through some of the context as well as, you know, deeper meaning and and our own thoughts of it and things like that. So I know where the Kingsbird sings. Uh, this is my Angelou's memoir of her childhood and her teenage years. Uh, born during the Depression, Maya and her brother Bailey are left with her grandmother and uncle while in Stamps, Arkansas, which is the town where much of the book does take place, although there are several other setting changes as, as you go throughout. Uh, the plot of the memoir, as it is, is actually largely episodic in nature. There's little vignettes and episodes of things that happen throughout Maya's life, showing how she endured the racism of the era during her time in Stamps. For instance, hiding her uncle from the Ku Klux Klan, or Ku Klux Klan, whites talking down to her, a white dentist, and a white dentist uh, refusing to treat her rotting teeth, for instance. At one point, Maya and Bailey's father appears and takes them back to St. Louis with him. There, she is abused and raped by Mr. Freeman, who is a family friend. She has him arrested, despite the fact that he threatened to kill her brother if she said anything about what he did to her. And while he is found not guilty, a mob finds him and kills him. Maya then returns to Stamps and goes mute for a long time, until she meets Mrs. Bertha Flowers and once again regains her confidence. Her grandmother eventually sends her and Bailey to San Francisco to live with their mother. Maya attends high school. She works as a streetcar driver. In fact, she's the first African-American streetcar driver in San Francisco. And then she has a lost weekend of sorts with her father in Southern California one summer, which leads to her being homeless. At the end of the book, she's back in San Francisco, but finds herself pregnant after she had had sex with a boy out of a sense of urgency. She hides the pregnancy until the very end. She wanted to make sure that she had graduated high school, and the book concludes with Maya giving birth to her son, Clyde. So that's a very, very quick summary of what is actually a pretty... Um, it's not a particularly very, very long book. Um, my The copy I have in my hand is 246 pages, so it's your average length of a of a book but it's as easy it is as, as it is to read because it's not it's it's not um you know the her her language her her storytelling it's it's it flows very very well it's a very dense book mm-hmm. so there's a lot to unpack in there and i was just trying to take this this dense book and kind of really compact it into something that's just a very succinct summary. And and we can unpack that from there as much as we want um, or as much as we can in the time we've got together here tonight. So I guess the, the first uh, question that that I like to ask is um, 
did you like this? I know you had never read it. Like, what was your, uh, what's your, what's your opinion on it? Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> I think overall, I did like it. If I were to compare it to like the previous two, I don't know if I liked it as much. And in the time leading up to our recording here, I was trying to like put my finger on why I may not have enjoyed it as much. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can say. There were some. <laughs> Really uh, humorous moments, which, you know, if we talk about our, our famous or our, our favorite anecdotes or little stories, um, I'll, I will be sure to uh, say which one I thought were pretty funny. And I think that despite some of the, the tragic things that go on and overall, you know, it being very serious subject matter, I love the way that Andrew, Andrew Wright, why does that sound, Angelou? It is Angelou, right? I think it's Angelou, although... Oprah used to say yeah. Angelou, <laughs> and that's exactly okay. how Oprah would say it. So it's either one. I, I sometimes I say Angelou, sometimes okay. they say Angelou. It's um, yeah, and, and it just sounded weird coming out of my mouth. Yeah, okay. Uh, I love the way. <laughs> no, I, I gathered that. I enjoy how Angelou writes and the fact that there's like some humor, you know, even in the midst of like these moments, uh, she'll just have sort of an aside, like, of course, that's how it was or, or something like that. I can't come up with like a good uh, instance. At first, I thought it was rather slow at the beginning. I was like, OK, so it's like the legitimate me- memoir. And then it started sort of picking up speed. It started laying groundwork for more like um, social commentary. And then uh, I started yelling at Tom for the things that were actually going on <laughs> inside the book because it sort of like got insane for me because I didn't expect this. And I was like, okay, can't get much worse than this. And then it did, and I started yelling at Tom some more. Um, so <laughs> I enjoyed it. I just think like it's a different level of enjoyment than like say sitting down and reading Of Mice and Men. And perhaps it's coming from the fact that this is true life because you know I can pick up Mice and Men and. I think, you know, we decided that those things are still happening today. It's a true picture of what was happening then. But you can also put it down and be like, well, those are fictional characters. But here you're picking this up and you're like, yeah, well, it's the past. We've moved on from that. But really happily. And also, this is a true person. And, and you know, she went through some some trying things. So th- I think that's kind of where I am. But it's still, uh, yeah. I don't know if that's like a good answer of did I like it or not. I think overall there was an enjoyment factor with it, but it was just a different type of environment. No, I think that's that's perfectly um, that's really really well put. Um, I I liked it as well, and I think it was on the same level. That was um, you're looking at a different genre. Mm-hmm. You are looking at nonfiction as opposed to fiction, so you're working a personal memoir. So you're not. Um, you're right. You're you're not. You're putting down. You're putting the book down at the end. And she still existed past the book, right? Whereas George didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, George's George. The story ends, and there's no. You know, some books have sequels, but once the but once the book itself ends, or the series ends, and granted, there are some book series that go on for what that have been going on for what seems like forever, but you know, that's it. You know, you'll never. We'll never meet Holden Caulfield again. We'll never meet George. Mm. Um, we'll never meet. Uh, we might not meet Scout. You know, things like that. But my uncle was a real person, so like you know, the story continues after this. It's and it's not and and um, 
one of, I, I took a I took a class this semester about young adult literature, and we were talking about different genres. And my professor made the distinction between autobiography and memoir. Uh, and mm. I never thought of this, but but she did. It was an interesting point that she made. She said that autobiography should be used to refer to a somebody writing about their entire life up until the point where they've written the book, from birth all the way to. Um, you know, where whatever the present day is, memoir is a specific set of events and set of time in which this story takes place. For instance, she would have classified Elie Wiesel's Night as a memoir because it only takes place over the course of about three years, four years. It starts in 1941 mm-hmm. and ends in 1945. This probably straddles the line between autobiography and memoir. I, I don't know the. I can't tell the, um, and maybe you can let me, I, I don't know the exact year it, it ends, but I think it ends much way before she wrote it. Because it ends when she's um, 18? Well, yeah, because she the, just graduated. Yeah, she just graduated. And she wrote it in 1969. She would have been, um, she was born in 1928. So, she was about... She'd been 40-ish. Published in 1969, she was about 40-41. So, certainly this would qualify as memoir, although, if I guess, in the whole scope of where there are other books um, beyond this of memoirs of hers that maybe they encompass an autobiography of of sorts. I think there's, there's seven, six or seven of them total. Um, I personally uh, liked her style. It's really conversational mm-hmm. in a way that's really engaging. Um, there's a sense that she's, I mean, she's showing us in sometimes some very vivid detail of what's happening, but at the same time, she's you feel like she's sitting with her and she's telling you the story. Um, and it, it's very, uh, and, and it, there, therefore it makes it less, um, it, it seems less writer-y, you know? She's got great use of language, yet she doesn't oversell the language. You know, like, things like that, because there are writers who are, who are memoirists who just oversell their vocabulary, oversell, you know, certain things, and, and, and she doesn't do that. It's, and, um, you know, she's, she she can be very to the point, yet at the same time, you're right. She it goes into social criticism and social commentary, and uh, and I think that's one of the things. I think that's one of the reasons why it's significant, um, especially since it's a lens. And we're going to get into this in more detail. It's a lens on a specific period of time and a specific um, era in American history. Uh, you know, uh, but she also keeps it very very personal. So I guess the, the first one of the first questions we had was. Um, how do we rate and critique memoirs? Should they have the same standards as novels? Yeah, <laughs> yeah this is my question, and I, I thought about it a lot. And I feel like they shouldn't be uh, critiqued in the same way as a novel. I think a novel can get by... Um, with a lot more potentially than, um, or, you know, like some sort of word of fiction can get by with a lot more, 
um, than potentially a memoir could. Uh, a memoir, to a certain extent, as well as you know, an autobiography, I think at least has to mean something to one person. Um, so it's hard to judge something like that because it at least has to mean something to the person who wrote it. And I think after that, then you start to think about, well, what sort of um, – how does it how does it find its place in you know the readership and can we relate to this because it's one person's story and that's not going to be really anyone else's story and I think to a certain extent obviously the time she was living in people can relate to that and everything and then fiction and, and you know novels and things are more like not always but you know escapist because obviously not everyone's going to have lived the life of the of the person. Uh, within those, but um, I don't know. This is this is a hard question, and I almost regretted putting it down. But I just feel like you can't you can't um, critique it the same way. And I think you could cr- critique the writing style in a similar way. Like, is this person a good writer or not? Um, by you know, I guess their imagery and and um, their expression and the tone and things like that. I think you can compare those two, but the subject matters. I, I don't think you could potentially critique them the same way. I don't know if that's even an answer. This is a hard question. It, I was thinking about it. It, it is, and, and I've and I've got it's it's a complex answer because what, while you're saying that, I also think of something when I teach my students narrative writing and narrative essays specifically that. They have plot and character, even though they're nonfiction. That if you are writing a piece that is true to life and the story is something about your life, you still are creating characters out of those real people. Because mm-hmm. I don't know your father. I don't know your mother. Yeah. I don't know your brother. So you have to use the same techniques of characterization that you were using if you are writing a fictional family um you know we still have to get to know your brother by the way he by the way he talks uh his appearance his actions um what other people say about him, his reputation, and those sorts of things. That's how we. That's how we learn a, about another character. Because so, because on the flip side, whenever I do characterization in fiction, I talk about how the methods of characterization are essentially the same way you meet a person. And if you think about it, there's there's in, there's direct characterization where somebody tells you exactly what a character is like. So you know, somebody says, you know, Moose is a big tough guy. Who uh, who Vito needs when he beats somebody up? He's you know it's like all right you know Moose is the tough guy that's the character, but then you've got you've got somebody where like you know you meet you meet somebody for the first time and you you think of what you observe of them, and then you think of when you meet a character for the first time and it really matches up, you take a notice of how he or she looks. Um, what expressions they use when they talk. Um, maybe little tics or habits that they have. You know, does she play with her hair? Does does he fidget or pace around the room? Is there a certain an affectation in their voice or something? Uh, their appearance, and and beyond fat, fat, thin, skinny, you know, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you have to do that when you are. Even though you know that person, you're describing that person true to life, you have to create a 
picture in in the in the reader's mind what you're right with imagery um of that person and that person needs to seem like you like need to feel that you got to know her brother bailey or somebody um Mm -hmm. i think that's kind of one of one of her the burdens on the on the writer of the memoir and i actually think that the memoirist might have a harder job than the fiction writer Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a burden of truth that does not exist with fiction. Now, there could be a burden of realism right. with fiction. If you're doing a novel that is set in a real place or set at a real time or is supposed to reflect the world as it presently is, as opposed to, say, science fiction or horror or something, um, or mm-hmm. fantasy or something like that. So, you know, there's a different, you know, there's like, you know, um, I read some Joyce Carl Oates novel over the summer. We were the Mulvaney's. Is that the name of the novel? Um, which is set in upstate New York through the 60s, 70s and 80s at a farmhouse. And it was just kind of like, you know, you have to, the burden is on her to make this seem like a realistic setting. Like you can picture this place, but like, you know, it's, but it doesn't have, it's, but it's not middle earth, you know, and, and, and things like that. So, so you yeah. have, so as a fiction writer, do you do sometimes have a burden of realism, but with, as a nonfiction writer, there's an authenticity that's required and an accuracy mm-hmm. that's required. Now it doesn't always work out that way. Um, because we've seen memoirists go completely down in flames because it turns out they made up a lot of what they, they were writing about. Right. Uh, and I can't remember the name of the author, uh, but it was, this is going back to Oprah. Two cups of tea? No, uh, A Million Little Pieces. Oh, I've not heard oh, of that. What the hell was his name? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, the, the author of A Million Little Pieces, um, Oprah had put this on her book club back, you know, back in the day when they did Oprah's book club. And if you know anything about Oprah's book club in the, uh, you know, back in the day, it was like, you know, that was like a gold star, you Mm -hmm. know, that, that she got people reading John Steinbeck again. I mean, that's like, you know, that was, that was a big thing. So it comes out that people start reading this book like crazy. And it's this inspiration story of addiction, but it starts coming out that like, um, he exaggerated or flat out lied on a number of the details. And she basically, she had him on the show again to essentially tear him a new one because there are very few people in this world. You do not tick off. Oprah Winfrey is one of them. Um, but, but like, you know, so, so when you, when, and and you lose the trust of your reader, you lose the trust of Mm -hmm. your public. And, and so Angela has this, this burden, which is kind of, um, which kind of goes to the question we were talking about, you know, to what extent can we trust the author of a memoir? Mm -hmm. Do we take everything he or she says at face value? Is she exaggerating things for the sake of a story? Is she taking two or three people and making them into like one person or character because it just mm-hmm. fits the narrative you know where where does the line the line is blurred between um i need to tell the story as it actually happened am i beholden to the narrative and uh that's that's where memoirists can kind of get in in a little in a little bit of trouble with um where people might question the accuracy because if you actually ta- told the story about how something actually happened there's some bits and pieces of really good stuff, and there's all the mundanity that's in between, like you know the mundane, the, the, just the little details that actually nobody really cares. Like, and you're like, get to the point of the story. Um, mm-hmm. 
So I mean, what do you? I mean, what do you think about that? Is 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 the burden of proof? The not burden of proof. That's that sounds like a murder trial. Is the burden of is the burden of authenticity? Is the burden of accuracy just as important or more important than the uh, than being beholden to the narrative? Uh, this, this is interesting because I was talking with uh, the English teacher. Uh, of my school, just in the workroom, as I was sliding the exams through the old Scantron. Ours uh, and <laughs> that's that Scantron, a that Scantron at my oh. building is older than I am, and that thing broke this week. Yeah. Anyway. Um. <laughs> so sliding exams to the Scantron. Yeah, and she brought up the the, uh, the idea of fact versus truth, and that something can be truth without being fact. Okay. Um, <laughs> right, you know, so like myth could be, a myth could be true without being a fact, that kind of thing. And so I'm doing it like a menial task and, you know, then she's getting all deep on this thing. And so I'm trying to think about, you know, what is that with, with, <laughs> with what I just read, fact and truth. You know, I guess fact is like Everyone would have to agree that this actual thing happened, and truth is only one person's perspective. So, of all this stuff, this is all true for my Angelou, but who knows if you know it's true for Bailey? Uh, you know, certain circumstances that happened. I guess that's where she's getting. Because um, then I brought up like another. It was like a. It was too brief of a conversation for me to get into fact versus truth. Um, but with this, I think. And it's funny you mentioned the the Oprah Winfrey thing because I think this happened with Two Cups of Tea. That's what it's called. Um, it's about this guy, and I can't remember his name either. I read it too, but it's like a very inspirational story about creating schools over in the Middle East. And okay. it comes back that you know there are these lies here, and so you wonder about that. You know, then there's that. That's the fact and truth. Like, where are there? Is there anything with that? But I think uh, I don't. This is hard because I think a memoir should be true. I, I don't mm-hmm. think there should be lies at all. I, I think that there are going to be misperceptions, like if what she perceived was happening at the time. Like, for instance, I think a very good example is the whole Freeman relationship. Yeah. Because her perception, like the very first time that it happened, she was very comforted um, to a certain extent because it was like a loving embrace that I feel like maybe none of the other adults had ever given her. And uh, however, as a reader, we're realizing that this is a not good thing that is going on right now. So, you know, her truth at that moment, I guess, was that um, it's, you know, uh, it was a comforting hug from this adult. But the fact of the situation is that he was actually sexually abusing her. So I guess that's kind of a good example of truth versus fact. But you don't want someone in a, any memoir to like flat out lie because then that person loses their authority on the issue. And then, you know, all of the wonderful things that were said, all of a sudden you can't pick out. Because one, that's a danger. Oh gosh, I kind of want to get into like a nerdy discussion no, on the Aeneid. But I can't. Well, <laughs> this is like a Latin nerd, but the Aeneid uh-huh. Um, there's like the personification of rumor that flies through and like talks. Anyways, the dangerous thing about rumor, though, is that she mixed fact with fiction. And so I always talk about like, why is this so dangerous? It's because like you can pick out the fact. And so if you believe that, oh, if this is true, then everything else must be true. That's a dangerous 
quality, I think, of a memoir, a lying memoir, is that if you believe some of the things are true, then you're going to believe everything. And then on the opposite spectrum, if you find out that someone flubbed something, like that guy you were talking about, if he exaggerated a couple details, and then you're like, well, wait, if he's doing that, then how much of the other thing is true? And then you're just sort of throwing everything out. Well, so I and, think, And in that case, yeah. he flat out made things up. Right, yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's, uh, that's another example of why potentially we can't judge in the same way fiction well you know right your work of literature with um because i think there's more of an onus um as an author on a memoirist than you know someone who's just out there to potentially entertain and there could be some you know value there and what they're trying to say but i think a memoir has got a heavier job to do yeah and there is the idea that um especially in today's world where it seems that everybody has some sort of agenda to out to get somebody with something that, that um, with, with facts versus truth, there's this effort. There's almost seems like a continuous effort to discredit people. And that what's a very flawed logic of this one thing is exaggerated or misperceived misconstrued or is made up therefore all of it's a lie you know mm. like which is not always true because but because that, that's that's a that's a flawed logical argument that lacks lacks nuance and subtlety you know beyond so um but there are a lot of people who do have that line of thinking that you know the one thing that you hear is and, and you hear this you we don't even need to talk about this with regard to memoir we can talk th- about this about an events on the news mm. you know the idea that something controversial happens and you find what like uh victim blaming is a great example right you find right, yep. one little thing that you've heard about the victim of a crime and all of a sudden you have excused the person accused of a crime you say because oh well he was doing this and it it, it obscures the facts that are actually being presented of like you know no what was happening was wrong um mm-hmm. because people this comes I, i'm coming off as I, i'm coming off as very just kind of a know-it-all here, but people really <laughs> have this tendency to um, just, they're, they're, they can be very simplistic in their thinking about things and and ignore the complexities because it's, I don't know, it's too hard for them because they'll mm-hmm. have to think about it and they'll have to think about it longer than 140 characters or whatever. And um, you know what I mean? Like it's so, so yeah. but, but I, I, and I think we're to try, to try to bring us back on topic. Like, you know, you're right. There is a, there is a burden on her to make sure that she is telling the story vividly. But at the same time, what this does is not only tell her story, but it tells you the story of an era of American society. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Jim Crow era. Um, it's Jim Crow, the Jim Crow South. And that is an era that um, by the time I was in high school, I knew, oh, I knew a little bit about, you know, from history class and having read a couple of other books here and there. But this gives a very, very vivid picture and a vivid picture from the point of view of somebody who was first experienced it firsthand 
as opposed to indirectly. And I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more. Uh, but I do. But but it just this kind of segues into into something we wanted to talk about. Um, getting into the specifics of the book about our favorite anecdotes, our favorite episodes, and one of mine um, is the dentist part. Um, oh no! Because of the way it was something that really presented itself as a really good example of this this racism that she encountered on a mm-hmm. very regular basis. And the, the, the gist of the story is that her teeth are, you know, they're awful. They're, they're just, you know, and, and she needs to go to a dentist and there's a, there is a black dentist in, I think it was Texarkana, which I'd spent the entire book. <laughs> is that a real place? It is a real place. It is a real place. Um, and, uh, it is, Oh, it was a ways away. It was like an hour, an hour and a half, whatever. And uh, there's a white dentist in town, and that white dentist in town, her um, grandmother. her grandmother, had uh, once helped him out. Because one of the things about her grandmother uh, is that she uh, th- that they survived. They all survived the depression. That her grandmother was a savvy. She owned a store. It was a savvy businesswoman. And her store stayed open the entire time. And not only that, she managed to be well off enough that she could help other people out, black and white. And one of them was this dentist. And he was like, and so basically, he's like, I'm not going to treat, I'm not going to treat this girl, you know, because she's, you know, because, well, she's black and, you know, I'm, I'm keeping my language very G rated here, but, um, well, the big quote: "I'd rather stick my hand inside of a dog's mouth, mouth isn't it?" Yeah, yeah. And and her her grandmother was basically trying to call in a favor. She's basically, you know, one hand washes the other. You know, I mean, I bailed mm-hmm. you out. Um, this is you. Know, I'm coming to collect. And he's like, you well, you know, I paid you back. And in her, what I like is that in her mind, as this is happening, Maya is imagining her mother almost like having this cinematic moment of triumph over the dentist, you know, like, and, but what really happens is that the mother just essentially gets just a little bit more money out of the guy interest. And then they end up going to the black dentist in, in Texarkana. And I like the, the fantasy versus the reality there. Yeah. Because I think it speaks to her efforts of trying to present the reality of the situation without it being built up as some sort of um, mythological sort of story. You know? Like like she's building a legend or something like that. Mm-hmm. Which, which we tend to do with historical events and historical figures in our uh, in our co- country and our culture, um, but so I, I like that because I think it's it's a very um, because this because she's not because she's going to the dentist, so it's it's a very ordinary thing that you do, and and I think it's it's important and just in the way that um, you know we, when you study the civil rights movement in the sixties, the fifties and sixties, you have to you have to pay attention to like the Montgomery bus boycott because it was black Americans trying to get to work. And not being, a, or or, tr- or the or the counter citizens trying to eat lunch, you know, trying to do everyday things, and protesting 
the fact that they were not allowed to do everyday things. And this is kind of along the same lines. Like, you know, you're, you're showing, you're showing this idea that, that was throughout the South and in the North as well of, um, separate, but equal, which was so not the case in many cases, in, in many, many ways. And, and the best way to show it is to show things that are just everyday, ordinary things, you know, like put aside trying to vote or something like that. Um, this is, this is something that I do every six months. I go to the dentist, you know, shouldn't you be allowed to do that without having to pay extra expense without having to get lesser quality or, you know, and, or or having the freedom to choose who you want to go to. Um, and so I, that's why, that's why I like that, that scene. Um, but I've talked enough. What, what was your, uh, but yeah, my favorite is, uh, how (laughs) entitled how I spent my summer vacation. (laughs) It's that, (laughs) The Mexican trip, and specifically two different sections of that, because there are like some terrible things that go on uh, when she's there with her father, and they go south of the border. Yeah. Uh, one, her driving her drunk father back across the border <laughs> is both like the most tragic and hilarious thing that probably happens like in the entire book. Um, maybe not the most tragic, but certainly the most hilarious in just the way that she's writing it and. You know, she's like, what? They're basically once, you know, I don't know, turn the wheel over to death with, with how she's describing it. She's never driven before. It's a stick shift, clearly. And, you know, she's using coasting and all this crazy stuff. She gets to the border, then she, like, hops the car and hits somebody else. It's like this. I don't know, this just bizarre and wholly, like, crazy tale that um, is really sad because the father is, you know, sort of took advantage of her. And I think that's kind of the reason why he wanted her there. Um, and she's, you know, just being the caretaker. Uh, but then, so that was like the, the lighthearted part, which I, I, I don't know, I just found it very amusing. Yeah, it but then it goes, <laughs> then it goes into this other part after she gets like basically chived by her potential stepmother, mm-hmm. um, like her, I guess her father's living girlfriend. She ends up staying the night in a, um, it's not a used car lot, but it's like a broke, like a junkyard, I guess. Okay. Of some sort of cars, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought that this was in its like utter depravity because like she should not have been in that situation. She, now you know she's there for at least a month. Uh, I mean, she spends the rest of her summer there. Mm. Her father doesn't even come look for her, which is pretty terrible. But in all of that, I actually found it very beautiful because she was wholly accepted. Uh, and, and I think this was like a really, um, a, like almost like a lotus blooming sort of situation. But because I feel like the entire novel, she really looked down on herself, um, whether it was like image wise or, you know, things that happened, like she very much blamed herself for, you know, the rape and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here she's with a group of kids who, you know, they have their own problems. They don't look twice at her. They welcome her in like 100%. There's like no judgment. And I think for like once in her life, she's very much a part of a community and love to a certain extent. I mean, not so much that like there's a tearful goodbye at the end. But I just really like that. And it's sort of a nice message of, 
you know, you can find a community anywhere, even in a junkyard. Uh, so that, I guess, it, the summer vacation, um, there's the humor, and then there's, like, really bad stuff. But the junkyard, I think, was just a really great um, time for her to, to really come into her own and lose, I think, part of that um, self-consciousness or, or just having low self-esteem. Yeah. And she... Um is it a substitute in some way at that point in time for her own family? Cause she's got, because yeah. I'm thinking about like, you know, her, her grandmother, her, she's got two women in her life who were very, very strong role models. Um, her grandmother and then miss Bertha, uh, Bertha flowers. You wouldn't count her mother as a role model. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Mostly. Well, I guess. Yeah. It depends on what is your definition of role model. Um, would you say? Uh, is it a positive or a negative? Usually, uh, well, yeah, that's the thing. Okay, I, maybe I'll be more specific. Positive role models. Okay, I'll go with you there. Then. Okay. Um, yeah, I've, but the women, the women in this book, by and large, are the more positive characters. Mm-hmm. And I use I know I'm using the word character, but let's just go with it. Um, the men are not. Mm. There are there are there are not many, and uh, her father is certainly not a good role model, a positive role model, because um, her father's the one who who picks them up and and uh, takes them back to St. Louis, and and uh, you've got Mr. Freeman, and it's just. You know, this. What's interesting too is I rereading this. Like I said, I read this back in in in, in high school, my junior year. So that was twenty, like twenty two, twenty three years ago. I don't remember how much we discussed the rape in class, and I want to say, not that it was glossed over or ignored. But I don't think it was focused on that much in our discussion of the book. Because I did not remember it when I read it. And I was reading and I was like, wait, what? It's just, it kind of, it shot, it's supposed to shock you, obviously. Mm-hmm. But it, it shocked me. And then she goes mute, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, quite, you know, for quite some time after that. And then she meets, you know, Bertha Flowers. And, uh, and you're right. There's this. There's all these things that happened to her in her life, starting all the way back at the beginning of the book, where they're essentially left on the grandmother's doorstep, and um, and she's. Uh, it's this adding up of this, this this issues with self-esteem. That you're right. She starts to overcome as the novel starts to reach its its climax, and the, not the novel. Sorry, as the book starts to work toward a so much a climax, but a conclusion. You know, it's not anticlimactic. Yeah. But it is. It is. There's no. It follows a plot structure, but at the same time, it doesn't. It doesn't follow that classic Freitex pyramid of the exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, resolution. You know, the, the that 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 my students have been drawing. You know, since seventh grade. <laughs> but it it, it, reach, it does reach a conclusion, um, and by the end, she's definitely more sure of herself. Mm. Um, 
I don't know. What do you say about the whole? What, what do you think about the women in her life? I mean, you know, the men in her life, with the exception of her brother, and even then, um, there are things that Billy does that that certainly frustrate her. Uh, yeah. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think all of the women in her life um, teach her something. I, I think positive or negative. Um, certainly, I think her grandmother is really at the top of of the list. It seems like it's to her that she would always go back and remember some sort of um, teaching or virtue that uh, she gave her. Uh, But I think there were also, like, questions that she had. I remember that whole, you know, how frustrated she got with her when um, the the quote-unquote white trash school children came down. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, we're doing. Oh, uh, I think one of the girls flashed her, um, <laughs> and, and how frustrated Maya was that just like why you know you're better than trash girls why can't you stand up to them but almost but being but I think realizing that she was also being an example of Christian charity and just like almost turning the other cheek and always being um, happy and loving to others so I think she learned that. Um, Flowers, Mrs. Flowers, I think, taught her, obviously, I think, gave her a stronger love of literature or a different type of love and just the power of language specifically. Um, And then one part that really struck me was the whole power of a name situation because she was working for that white woman. Mm-hmm. And she like changed her name because someone told her to that Marguerite was like too hard to pronounce or something like that. Uh, and so I think she learned a lot about her identity there. So all of the women seem to be really strong influencers, whether they're positive or negative, yeah. I think is something. But um, her grandmother, it was a little frustrating just because you wish that she showed love. And I think she did love her uh, and showed it in her own way. But you almost did want sort of that comforting factor and even there was one part in kind of the middle or near the beginning that she said she did tell me that she loved me or something like that at one point like it was just one time that uh, Maya asked her do you love me or something like that and it was just that one time which was a little sad because I I think Maya really needed that love and and strove for it but maybe never received it as she wanted to Um, but yeah I feel like all these uh I feel like the character of Maya Angelou in this novel, uh, in this memoir, uh, is is certainly made up of little bits of the, the people that she was um, surrounded by. Um, you had uh, one of the questions, um, and just to pull back the curtain here, I say <laughs> one of the questions. Stella and I get together um, virtually <laughs> over a Google Doc, and we insert questions into this document that we're going to that we're going to use. And, and what I tend to do is I tend to write out answers on a pad or whatever. Um, and one of the questions, and, and I'm, I'm, I am, we don't necessarily go in order cause I'm skipping around a little bit, but one of the questions you had written and you had actually texted me about this, that, and you've brought it up already, um, talking about the, the rape at the hands of Mr. Freeman and that there's, yeah. uh, you had written, uh, you know, is she associating it with, Love. She watches her brother do sexual acts with girls in the fort. Um, yeah. And I had wondered, you know, and I and I I should have I should have done a little more research on this. Is there there's this in a pattern of abuse where you for where 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 there's a cycle of abuse and people don't necessarily 
get themselves extricate themselves from the situation, even though they know deep down it's dangerous to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, granted, she's also very young when he does this to her. Right. You know, um, but there is, you know, there's, uh, you know, it's not unheard of um, in situations like that for the person to defend their abuser. Um, and, you know, take what I say as a grain of salt. I'm not, I'm not trying to sound authoritative on this, but I just, I, I, I've heard of this. And, um, but it does, it, it, does it screw up her? I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a gimme question. I mean, just how, how badly does it screw up her view of sex and sexuality? And, mm-hmm. um, or, or does it like, yeah, all right, let's start with that. How, I mean, like to what extent, um, you know, cause she, she gets pregnant at the end of the book and it's, it's like right. she has sex to almost get it out of the way and with a kid. So, well, I also connected it with, um, proving that she wasn't a lesbian as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, yeah, so there was that pressure there. Oh, but continue. I mean, it was just the question it's was like, you question. know, like, um, I had written down and, and I don't know, um, I don't know how true this is. Does all of this end up enforcing proper behavior in a sense? She hides her pregnancy mm-hmm. because she, because this is the, this is the, um, she's 18. So this is quite a long time ago. She will get kicked out of school. If, if she reveals she's pregnant nowadays, you can walk down the hallway of a high school pregnant. I teach public school. I've seen it. Back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I graduated public school. Yeah, back then, because we're talking like 60, 70 years ago, mm-hmm. you were, yeah, you you could get expelled. You could get sent away, essentially. And she knows that. And she has turned her life around to this point where she is very smart. She's very successful. She knows she has to graduate high school. Has... All of this stuff that's happened to her informed that, you know, is, is this, is this her reaction to like, you know, I've, I, I know, you know, like she knows what she has to do, what the right thing to do is by this, you know, by this child and this, you know, hiding the pregnancy is, is, is a way to do it, even though it is deceptive. Am I making any sense with my question? You are making sense. Um, I just don't know if it was, like, so altruistic or, like, morality-based of what she was doing. Are you getting to, like, the... Well, because... Or the practicality? Well, I just feel like... Yeah, because I feel like how I was reading it was, was, like, almost selfish reasons. Because she wanted to graduate. And she wanted to graduate, basically. So that's why she was going to hide it. Um, And Bailey was also an influencer on that because he was saying... You know that um, Mama, Mommy Dear, is that her name? Um, Mama Dearest, or yeah, whatever yeah. her name is, uh, does not like go for abortions. Um, so, like that seemed like it was like she was poo-pooing that idea. If that was even on the, because that was like an unworded or unvocalized um, option. I think, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I feel like I don't. Ugh. This is, this is a very hard question. Uh, <laughs> I think it was selfish reasons that she uh, hid it 
because I think she knew what was going to happen and she wanted to graduate high school. Mm-hmm. I think having the child, however, I feel like there's a big connection with the beginning of this book, uh, not necessarily the prologue, but with, you know, chapter one, because it all starts off with the fact that they were like literally Paddington Bears and we're left at uh, – yeah, I hope you get the reference. Yes, and we're I get the reference. A, you know, okay. We're left at a train set, you know, for someone else to pick up. You know, I, they were basically unwanted. Um, and that's at least, you know, my perspective. And I think ending it in this way where, like, she's – it's very strange to like read her like perception. She doesn't even realize she's pregnant almost until she has the baby. She's like, oh, I, I was pregnant. I had this living being inside of me. Uh, and then witnessing her like loving uh, attention and like being so careful and not wanting to roll over. Like I think it's so opposite of what how her parents treated her and her brother. Um, that I think there's like a beauty in that. Now, connecting back to, I guess, Freeman, because I think one of your original questions was, did this sort of change her perception of, like, sexuality, I guess? Or is that sort of also or, within or your question? Or sex. sex I think general? sexuality yeah. might not be the right word. Yeah, that's sex true. Sex yeah. would probably be the better word. I think it, it absolutely does. But I think, I think there's a difference for her between sex and love. Um, and I can't really, like, I would really have to sit down and think about, like, her perception of what was, and I think it goes back to that whole hugging thing, because I think in that moment, that first time, where there wasn't a rape, um, but there was clearly an assault, um, she felt loved, and, and, and she really wanted to hold on to that, um, that feeling, you know, of being hugged, um, and I don't know if she associated that with love and then realized that, like, the next part, which was the actual rape, like turned into like a perverted form of love. And the reason why I feel like um, her idea of love was perverted by this is because that whole Valentine's situation, because she like physically recoiled when her friend said something like, he clearly loves you. And then she associated that with the rape. She associated mm-hmm. love with the rape. Mm-hmm. So I think if there were like physical feelings and love, she associated that with the rape, but like the sex, like the sex, what didn't seem to be associated with it, which is a little strange. I can't, I can't necessarily, I shouldn't say strange. That's not the right word. I can't necessarily wrap my mind around it because even with her having sex with that guy down the street, which was so like, Hey, let's you know get together. It was yeah, literally yeah, like that. Yeah, I think she literally says, "Would you like to have sexual intercourse with me?" Yes, which was somewhat comical in the way, like yeah, yeah it's intercourse. Actually, it was like in the way she laid it down, but also in the way she narrates it. She's like, "There was no pain this time because Mr. Freeman." It was almost like completely detached emotionally whereas if it was a loving act i think there would have been like a little bit of bristling with that um and it's also confusing for me to be like why is she outside guarding the tent for her brother when like what he's doing is reminiscent of what mr freeman did it's just that there are like willing partners here so i think sex and love are very different for her um and i think love is associated with the rape and sex is just some sort of human act or need and and there's not as much importance associated with that but that's like how far i get because i think it's a very complicated uh topic in here um 
it, it's yeah, it's hard to to sort of get into her mindscape and and what she is is thinking about. Yeah, and she seems just as confused as well. Yeah, it seems um, I was skimming through the scene and I was because it's, it's it's the last like three or four pages of the book, and right. um, she has sex with him and then she discovers she's pregnant and then she um, then she, she of course has the baby and she she hides the pregnancy for as long as she can. Um, and the way she describes having to take on the responsibility of the pregnancy, she says, um, uh, let's see, uh, for eons it seemed I accepted my plight as the hapless put-upon victim of the fate and the furies, but this time I had to face the fact that I had brought my new catastrophe on upon myself. How was I to blame the innocent man whom I had learned into, lured into making love to me? In order to be profoundly dishonest, a person must have one of two qualities. Either he is unscrupulously ambitious, or he is unswervingly egocentric. Mm. He must believe that for his ends to be served, all things and all peop- and people can, be ju- can justifiably be shifted about, or that he is the center not only of his own world, but of the worlds which others inhabit. I had neither element in my personality, so I hefted the burden of pregnancy at 16 onto my own shoulders where it belonged. Admittedly, I staggered under the weight. Um, so it's... It, it, this, this, this is why, I, before we began, we were talking about how this is probably the hardest book we've read out of three so far. <laughs> and this is why it is, yeah. because it's so complex. And yeah. she's getting... And this, I think this is one of the reasons I, I trust her as a narrator, is because she is she is not only fully acknowledging the complexity of everything that happened to her, she's taking it head on. She's yeah. contemplating it. It is so complicated and so complex and so layered that that even it's it's very hard to unpack um, in 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 this short time that we've got. But I think what you were saying was very very correct. And at the end, she has the baby, and it's like alien to her. Yeah. She doesn't know what to do with this the baby. Um, you know, I mean, and granted, having have it, I have a child, <laughs> and there is still when you first have the kid, father or mother, there is still that sense of, oh my god, I I have this this life in my hand. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know what to do. Okay. Like you know what to do. Like but okay, like when yeah. we had Brett, it was like we knew what to. Do. We knew what we were doing because we had taken a bunch of classes and read a bunch right. of books. But on the flip side, we had no idea what the hell we were doing. Right, and it's the same thing. And and she is just she's her her first reaction is is um she is is she's scared. Yeah. And it is so I don't want to say refreshing, but there's such the cliche of a woman who does not know better has the baby all of a sudden from the moment she sees the baby nurturing mother kicks in. You know, it's almost like a stereotype. It's all of a sudden like she's like she knows exactly what she needs to do and blah blah blah. Yeah. And there's problem there is and people have parental maternal instincts, etc. But at the same time, Maya's not um it, like it takes her mother to saying, like, you know, uh, you know, she's uh you know, her mother um you know, she's sleeping with the baby. 
Right. And uh, this is the end of the book. She says, you know, uh, my shoulder was shaken gently. Mother whispered, Maya, wake up, but don't move. I knew immediately that the awakening had to do with the baby. I tensed. I'm awake. She turned the light on and said, look at the baby. My fears were so powerful I couldn't move to look at the center of the bed. She said, again, look at the baby. I didn't hear sadness in her voice, and that helped me break the bonds of terror. The baby was no longer in the center of the bed. At first, I thought he had moved. But after closer investigation, I found that I was lying on my stomach with my arm bent at a right angle. Under the tent of the blanket, which was pulled by my elbow and forearm, the baby slept touching my side. Mother whispered, see, you don't have to think about doing the right thing. If you're for the right thing, then you will do it without thinking. She turned out the light and I patted my son's body lightly and went back to sleep. So, again, there's that complexity of, you know she's starting to get it, you know, but like, you know, she's, she's so afraid of what she's, because she's, she's gotten into the situation and she, she calls it a burden, a complication. It's just like yet another problem in my life that, that is, I have heaped upon in this time I've heaped upon myself. And there, a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the stories in this book are things that happened to her that caused her problems. And perhaps the ending is that shift in perspective mm -hmm. that it's not a problem that you caused. Um, it's not that everything is going to be absolutely perfect uh, from here on out, but there's a, there it's, it's, it is, it's a nice positive ending for sure. Um, did I make any sense with that? You did. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, did you want to add anything to it before I, I move on to the next uh, kind of issue that's brought up in this? No, I think I said my piece. Okay. So, um, one of the other big things, and we've already mentioned this in our discussion here, is uh, the uh, the historical perspective. This as a piece of a... Um, historical narrative specifically the Jim Crow South of the depression and after the depression. Um, if she's 16, when he's born 28 plus 16 is 1944. Yes. Yes. Um, so okay. it's pre civil rights movement. Well, you know, pre, you know, what we associate with the civil rights movement happens um, in the 1950s and into the 1960s, uh, you know, that's where you have Brown versus the board of education and then, um, you know, integration schools and, and, and Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, et cetera, what, what we associate with it. Uh, so we have what, what is, what is very commonly referred to. And, and the question was, is this seen as a better, as a glimpse into the past of the, is this better seen as a glimpse into the past of the trials and hardships of black Americans from a person, personal authoritative perspective. And I guess I would also add, do, does it help or, or, or does it hinder our perspective to have this sort of personal story be like primary source material? You know, like, does this give us more of a perspective on this era than something else that's not a memoir, but is a work of nonfiction? Oh, that's a work of nonfiction. 
Um, we'll we'll talk about works of fiction as well. I just what was your first? What was the first part of the question? Is this better seen as a glimpse into the past of the trials and hardships of Black Americans? <laughs> oh, okay, my question. It was your question. I added to it with the okay. you know yeah, 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 why, yeah. why 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 do the personal stories as opposed to Absolutely. straight nonfiction? Yeah, I think. I think it's both. I think it's both um, because it's obviously a personal tale. Um, you know, Jim, a rape of a young woman or a pregnancy of a young woman could have happened in Jim Crow times or not. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of her, I was very taken aback. It was very clear when she was making like a commentary on things. Uh, the white trash children was something. Her watching from within the store um, as the men got onto the truck and off of the truck each day to pick cotton and things like that. And I remember she was like filled with righteous anger, things like that. Yeah. So I think uh, it certainly is a it's a personal you know things that only happened to Maya, but then there are also things that could have happened to um, any person at that time in that particular place. And I think that this is. Um, a better illustration potentially than a nonfiction because it's coming from, well, let's just say it's an authentic source and it's coming from someone who lived it. Uh, it's not um, a historian looking back. Even a couple of years, you know, I think that the, some, the, the history is tainted a little bit. Um, because she lived it, I, I think that uh, it lends a little more credence. Um, because she is black, I think it lends, you know, a little more credence. Um, because, you know, the white perspective, obviously, there's going to be a bit of a change. Uh, even if you're, you know, if it was on, someone who was on the, the black person's side on Jim Crow, I think there's still a change of, like, why are you doing this compared to why, you know, a black person would be um, standing up for their rights and things like that. So I think that, yes, it is a, a, a better companion, or however you phrased it, a better uh, illustration of Jim Crow America, yeah. Okay, now getting into fiction... There's a book that hangs out there whenever we talk about Jim Crow, the Jim Crow South, and it's written by a white woman, and it's from the perspective of a white woman, and that is To Kill a Mockingbird, which is one of my favorite novels of all time. But at the same time, is this – does this replace Mockingbird? Is the companion to Mockingbird, or is this the next level – after Mockingbird. It's certainly a more complicated book than Mockingbird. Yes. Um, what do you think? And then I'll offer my... What do you mean by the next one? Okay. Can you explain um, that? To Kill a Mockingbird is uh, a novel that we will eventually cover, but um, <laughs> it is. We are Spoilers. so going to cover that someday. I, <laughs> okay. I, I, am, I, I, am, I have no doubt in my mind. Um, okay. But it's it's told from the point of view of Scout as an adult, as she tells the story of this um, black man who's accused of rape that her father defended, and she gains perspective about her community about black Americans and, and what they're going through. And, and it becomes this commentary on race 
that was published at a time when that was the big commentary going on. It was published in the, I think it was published in 1960, um, or thereabouts. I think the movie's from 60 or 61. So, you know, you're talking right in the middle of, of, um, right in the middle of the era. This comes out, and uh, I know the Cage Bridge thing is 1969. It's like, I don't want to, this sounds so stupid to say, but it's like, it's almost like, okay, it's, it's palatable for white people to read To Kill the Mockingbird when they're in high school because it's, you know, a character they can identify with and that they're getting that particular point of view. But you, but if you, if you read this after this, if you read, I know where the Cage Bridge thing is after To Kill a Mockingbird, I see this more. Like you said, there's an authenticity to it. Yep. Um, she actually experienced this. There is. It's from the. It's from the point of view of somebody who this happened to, as opposed to a second party observer. Uh-huh. Um, you know, like scouts. Scout is like a second, a secondary source almost. She's like a second party observer. She is not black. Right. Um, she's a kid, and so she's observing what's happening with with Tom Robinson. Um, and but my Angelou is actually living this 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 thing, um, and it's a more complex, more complicated thing. So it's almost like you know what I meant by the next level. It's like you know you get a basic understanding of the issue through To Kill a Mockingbird, and then you when you read I Know Why the Cagebird Sings, it's like it's it's the it's the next level up. You know, it's it's uh, now you're going deeper. It is to me the the uh, the, the analogy that I can make. It's to reading the diary of Anne Frank when you're in middle school and then reading night in high school because mm. they're both about the Holocaust, but one is more um, mild in a sense and more very much more accessible than the other. And the other is, is very accessible, but it's also very, very raw and, and, and graphic and heavy and, and this has very, very the same, a lot of the same stuff. Where, like, you know, there's there's things that are very raw and and, and very very heavy in, in Mockingbird, but um, Anjali does not pull punches in this book. And um, I was wondering, you know, it, it, that's that's where I was I was thinking about the compa- like, is it a companion piece or? I mean, I personally don't think it replaces To Kill a Mockingbird, but I think yeah. it needs to be written. I think it needs to be read as you grow in your perspective on this issue. Um, yeah. So you would read them both. I would, yeah. I think it's. I think it is. It's a nice companion piece. But I, I see now. Now that you've explained to me what you mean by the next level, um, <laughs> uh, that I think it's also that. I, I think it's a companion piece because it's just like you said. You know, Scout is white, and so she's looking at this from that sort of lens. But Maya actually lived this, so you know, what is that perspective? Um, and also, this is true in nonfiction, and while. Um, there are probably probably a situation like Tom Robinson's trial actually happened. Um, it's still, you know, we're a fiction. Um, yeah. yeah, and something that I noticed, and and again, I'm. You were gonna say something? No. Okay. I was thinking about uh, about the wind actually. Okay. Because there's a companion piece to that called the wind ungone. Which is from the African American perspective. I remember that coming out. I've read. I, I I will admit I have not read either. Yeah. I've never well, even seen the like, film yeah. Gone with the Wind. So. 
I think that's probably the idea of like companion, like you know, two different perspectives. Or you know, if you read Twilight, then you can read Edward's perspective. Uh-uh. It's interesting to read Jim. <laughs> that was a joke, um, but really, actually, um, it'd be interesting to read Jim's perspective on Huck Finn. That would be interesting, even though I. I what does Jim think of this crazy kid? I, I I'll eventually reread that book. That was not a book that I particularly liked in high school. Um, I read it the same year as I read this. Uh, I, there's something I, I wrote a note down, and I'm trying to articulate this in a way that sounds clear. Um, no, no, this is a serious point. It's about okay. it's about history. And the way we look at, say, the civil rights movement and the way we look at um, racial justice and things like these these topics, which which we, we've already we've touched on. We've touched on a lot of the personal issues and then we're getting in a lot of kind of the societal issues with that are that are brought up by this book. There's this. She's she's so honest in this book and she's so human. She makes mistakes and she's complicated and complex. And I, I thought of the people that when you start running, if you were to, if you were to teach a hist- a basic history class on, you know, in junior high or high school, and you had to, and one of your units was civil rights, you'd probably talk about, uh, three people would come up at least. Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and Rosa Parks. And I'm trying to think back from when I was a kid learning about these people. And there was this sort of legendary status applied to them, rightfully so. But the way the story was told, it took a lot of the, um, it almost took a lot of the bite out of who they really were. Um, like I've, I, I, when I got to college, I had the, the opportunity to read, to actually read some of what Dr. King wrote, and I found it way more powerful than what I had learned in, and seen the one clip of the "I Have a Dream" speech and stuff in high school, um, because here was somebody who was just had such a way with words and, and had and, ha- and and really understood you know like you know really understood you know everything that was going on and, and there was a lot more um I don't know if aggression is the right word but um sometimes I think that history textbooks especially you know in, in a community like where I grew up which was you know literally had like two black families in it where the passive resistance, the idea of passive resistance, it seemed like there was a little more emphasis on the passive. And with Rosa Parks, it was this story that we were told about. They made her seem like this frail old woman who wanted to sit down on the front of the bus when she certainly did want to sit down on the front of the bus, but it was also, but they, they gloss over the fact that no, this was, a deliberate act of protest and defiance. And when we see protests and things going on, there is this criticism of those protests that they're not being done appropriately. And I think it goes back to our, sometimes um, our history book perspective of somebody like that, where 
And when I'm like, well, what's an appropriate protest? And I don't know if I'm making sense here, but like the thing that I think I gained from perspective of reading this book twice now is the humanity behind the people who are involved in the humanity and like wanting to go into the actual historical figures who were behind a lot of, you know, a lot of the struggles of Jim Crow and the civil rights and things like that. And, 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 and reading more of them and reading more by them um, rather than, you know, like kind of this, Oh, they were helpless, gentle, victimized. And um, you know, that showing them with the ability to fight back, but not really showing them at the full strength that they had, because that might be intimidating to, um, I don't know, a white audience or whatever. Um, you know, I think I think that it's, and maybe this was the 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 vibe I got growing up, that, you know, or there's actually in, in members of my own family hear the words Black Panthers, and think and will equate them with the Klan. You know, like that false equivalence, and you're like no this is not you know that and and but that's because they're because of the way um the way the narrative has been woven and and essentially and um i i, I think that on some level i mean it's I, i'm going off like i I'm, I'm probably going off on a tangent here and i'm probably completely wrong and if anybody is listening to this and really wants to correct me or or add to that because i don't know how coherent i'm being please do um and i'm not being sarcastic please do I think that she provides an honesty that that is much needed, especially as we get further and further away in history from from the events as they're taking place. Yeah, and unfortunately, I feel like you know we're both school teachers, um, and this will be my perspective on it. But mm-hmm. I feel like there's also an apathy involved with it um, because students, when they're going into history, um, they're just in there. And learning the facts, just facts, or yeah. and you know, the, then they're performing another test or, or just guessing of like, well, I need to know this because Mr. Perkins is going to ask me this question, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a big disconnect now with like, oh, our nation was like this, but you know, like these sort of things happened. I, I think there's a bit of an apathy or like, well, they happened, but this doesn't involve me anymore. Mm-hmm. situation uh, where I I would almost argue like we it will always involve us um, because I feel like the history so much like we always have to I think stay attuned to what has happened in the past and unfortunately history really does cycle through and I feel mm-hmm. like we're at this, this bad place now in yeah. our nation as well um, but but I, I totally see what you're saying Yeah, I, I think you know the history the textbooks is one thing because it's just a narrative and who's writing these textbooks that's you know another question mm-hmm. and then it's just like I think the students are just in this other place. Um, whether it's entitlement or it's it's something else, it's like they're not really there. So to, I, I don't even know what they would do reading this book. I mean, we read Night, and I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm well, not sure what their reactions are. Night, night, night's an interesting example to bring up because there's a phrase that uh, that Ellie Wiesel and a number of all Holocaust survivors have brought up. It's called bearing witness. Mm-hmm. And I think that would definitely apply. It's, I think that definitely applies to any historical event. Yeah. But especially when a group has been oppressed and oppressed to the point where they are killed, it's it's important to bear witness because you're right that history is cyclical and you want you don't want to lose the perspective because you don't want it to happen again. Especially if you ended up winning out, you ended up surviving, you ended up 
overcoming. And, but, the, but, the, you know, the fight's never truly over. You know, these things still do exist. Um, I, uh, one of the last questions I had, it was just, or it was just a, a, a comment I made was that one of the recurring themes of motifs is displacement. And, um, you know, if you look at, which is a, you know, there's, um, I, 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 I was wondering this as I, as I saw the events of the book unfold, she, she can trace her life through where she's lived and she's, she, she bounces back and forth between different settings throughout throughout the book, and 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 this is something that didn't register me with me until I started teaching, um, especially teaching students whose lives are, are um, similarly interrupted. Like you know, I grew up in the same house. My parents lived in the same house since 1975. I was born in 1977, so um, and they're still there. You know, so I mean, so I didn't. I was not displaced. And yet I have students who, and, and I don't know if you do or not, but I have students who in the middle of the year will end up at a different high school or come in from a different high school, or they have changed addresses again, or they're going to live with mom or they're living with grandma. Or, and mm-hmm. it's this, and it's this, and I, and I started to see that as I was reading this, because when I read this in high school, I had no context for that. And I still don't fully understand it because that's not the life I'm leading now either, where we're, you know, constantly, you know, moving or my son's being shuffled off to different things. I know I moved a couple of years ago, but that's, that was a different sort of move. This isn't, you know, um, I lost the lease in the apartment. We got kicked out, like for, for all these things. And what's interesting is that when you contrast that with the sort of, you can contrast that directly because um, she ends up in San Francisco at the end. And I also thought of the whole concept, which is very white. It's very male and it's very wealthy in the end um, concept of manifest destiny. You know, that like if you trace kind of like the white, white history in a sense of, of, of expansion of West in the 1800s and stuff of, you know, that, that this is ours for the taking. And yet you have, you know, in contrast, this, this displacement where she kind of bounces around and then ends up on the, on the West coast. Um, and, uh, it's, it's an interesting contrast because we don't uh, very often when we talk about, um, something like, like manifesting, we, we don't get the perspective of groups that, that were in the minority or of the oppressed or were displaced because of that. You know, and this can get into issues not just concerning race and can issues deserving concerning poverty as well, because um, there is a lot of you know when you when you don't have you know when you have the money for a stable place of living, you don't necessarily know where you're going to be living from year to year. Um, and then you think of say we're both in education, you know, um, that can be very disruptive to your learning and, and your ability to get an education and then hopefully make something of that. <sighs> yeah. I think, uh, well, I guess when I think of manifest destiny, I almost think of it as a, in a positive way because I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, well, cause I feel like weren't people like searching for like wonderful new opportunities and land and things like that. Oh yeah. It's the pioneer spirit. And I'm not discounting yeah. that there's a positive side to it. I was just, it, it made me think of the negative. It made me think of the flip side. Yeah. Of it. Yeah. I understand. I think that for certain family members, um, 
they were living a manifest destiny. And I think mainly of, well, I think the mother and the father, really. Because the father, while not like the cushiest job, had a job and seemed to be like living kind of well. Um, And the mother... Well, she had like a good reputation in the town, trying to figure out whether or not she was um, a madam in a brothel. I I, I don't know. Um, and it was well, she. It, it seemed like, like she could afford clothing, whereas the grandmother um, had to make the own clothing. So I feel for them, the West was almost it was opportunity for them. It, while there was some prejudice, it seemed like it wasn't as like once uh, Maya went over there, it seemed like it was a, a world, a world of difference. Um, and there wasn't as much uh, of like a Jim Crow situation. Um, I feel like the biggest example was the uh, the streetcar mm-hmm. and, you know, just trying to get into the office. But I think whereas like there wasn't, I don't know if you compare that with the dentist, it seems like night and day, that sort of example yeah. um, for my perspective anyways. But then when we think about with Maya, I would absolutely think that it's, um, you know, shuffling around and was very negative. And as you said, um, how would you say it? Oh, you know, poverty and displacement. Um, and who knows? I, I can't really put my finger on why they put, uh, why they Paddington Baird, um, Maya and Bailey. Yeah, um, because it said at the beginning that they split up. But was it financial reasons? Because it doesn't seem like, it, you know, at the end. And then why are they then shifted back? Why did the grandmother just keep them? So I think for Maya, certainly... And for her parents, it seemed like the West was um, opportunity. And and actually, you know, for Maya, I guess maybe she did more opportunities over there because she said she was learning different things. Well, actually, wasn't she ahead of her classes when she went over there? So she seemed smarter. But there may have yeah. been more opportunities. Could she have gotten an actual job um, back in stamps besides what she was doing for her uh, her mom? So maybe. Yeah. I, I think. You're right that displacement and poverty, there's a there's a connection there. But I think maybe um, there was a bit of a manifest destiny for um, black people, um, at least in this. West uh, and more opportunities. I feel there's just a lot of unanswered questions here. And there's a lot more we, we could do um, because of how complex this book is. But I guess... I guess I'll start with my th- final thoughts on it, and then I'll then I'll go to you. Like I said, I, the point I was making earlier about this being the sort of next level in in a book of this regard is, uh, I think that's that's important to note. This is a book that you don't give to a seventh grader, yeah. but at the same time, I th- you know you by the time you are a teenager, especially if you're if you're a little more well-read, you definitely, definitely should read. Also, um, I think, you know, just going back to its genre, I think it's an, it's an excellent example of a memoir. Um, and I think it's one of those that it's almost the, the kind of the, the standard, one of the standard bearers of the memoir, uh, that, um, you know, in the, in the very, very, in the very conversational and straightforward tone it takes, uh, the way it does not back down 
from an honest portrayal of the of her with all of the mistakes she makes and the and the the, the bad things that happen to her and the good things that happen to her and and the conflicts that she has in her own feelings toward people um and uh and I think that's what makes it a really really rich uh rich book what do what do you think yeah it really is rich mm-hmm. I'll say that let me ask you um because I'm sort of formulating my thoughts you yeah. said you're junior year junior junior year yeah do you remember the books the what book you read before this and what book you read after no, I do know what other books I read that year. Was there anything even close to this? Um, going down the list really quickly off the top of my head, from American literature, we read Death of a Salesman, Catcher, Gatsby, Huck Finn, A Separate Piece. Mm. Did we read Lord of the Flies junior year or senior year? I don't remember. Um, I want to say we read Lord of the Flies as well. But that, that's a British book anyway. So, and I'm, no, Professor Allen, I'm not insulting the British. I'm just saying, I was just saying of the American lit pieces, uh. Death, the Salesman, Gatsby, Separate Piece, Catcher, Huck Finn, and, uh, and I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Gotcha. Um, and were you doing U.S. history in 11th yes. grade? Uh, no, okay. uh, yes, yes. U.S. history was 11th grade. Because uh, ninth and tenth grade, where I went to high school, was called global studies, and ninth grade was ninth grade was um, non-western. Ninth grade was basically non-western civ, civ and then tenth yeah. grade was a European history. Gotcha. I uh, so you said about the seventh graders. I would just be so hesitant to teach this, and not because I don't think it's worthwhile being taught to students, but I think that there is there are so many ways to do it injustice, um, and there's like only a couple ways that you could do the justice. I think reading six, I don't know what your English teacher was thinking, but reading six books, that's great. Lot. Oh, but uh, we read did a, you say like six? Oh, yeah, we read a lot of, li- we read a lot of literature every year in high school, when I was in high school. Yeah. And I think, I mean, if a survey course, you know, that's sort of the point. Mm-hmm. For something rich like this, you need time to delve into it. And I think it's also something that you need to pair with something else, whether that's, um, a nonfiction, you know, uh, picture of what was going on there in your history class or not, or a fictional something. I just think that uh, I would be very hesitant to teach it because I think that there are so many ways to, to go wrong. And then you even said about the rape. Yeah. Like, that's a heavy thing. And how is it treated? What, you know, students, like, I don't know, now that we're getting so far past this it's it's sort of hard for like i said you know i think there's an empathy now uh with students um so that's you know the school perspective i think that it is uh certainly a must read i think in the the current um socio um cultural and socio-political climate that we're in that now is even more the time to start revisiting her past and, and seeing how uh, different people groups were treated. Um, again, the, the language is so rich. Uh, she does such a great job as an author, um, not only creating herself as a character, um, but also 
pairing, you know, tragedy with comedy, however she is able to do that, mm-hmm. um, and, and having such wonderful moments. It is episodic, like you said, and there are times I was like, how in the world is this going to connect? And it does at the end. Like, the episode is like, you know, something goes on, yeah. and then... You're like, okay. And then it connects somehow to, to what, like her, either a bigger theme or something else that happened, which I think is, is, uh, really great. And like you said, I think it's a good, um, example of a memoir, perhaps the best. I would consider teaching this to upperclassmen of an advanced level. Yeah. But I th- agree with you in that you need the opportunity to go deep with it, and you can't because yeah. you you were talking about history class earlier about how it's facts and what you need to know for the test, and and, and I know I know my fair share of history teachers, and I know that they complain about that as well. Actually, right, a lot yeah. of a lot of history curriculum, especially in public school in Virginia, is essentially dictated to you by the state standards, and it's like you have to spend a certain number of weeks on this and this and this. And I, one of the most apt analogies, or the most apt, um, I don't even analogies the right word but the most apt uh, descriptions of a history curriculum is a mile wide and an inch deep you know that you are just covering 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 i personally think i'm not a history teacher i'm an english teacher i personally think american history should be two courses and i think that world history should be two and i think but like you know virginia standards for history like their requirements for history like the kids don't even have to take world history at this point um to, to graduate high school which is such a shame but like there's world 1 and world 2 which covers like a certain point up to a certain point i think there should be an american history 1 and american history 2 where you cover yeah. um there's so much yeah you cover the beginnings of indigenous peoples uh settling Settling the continent and then into Jamestown, et cetera, all the way up to maybe you could use the Civil War as the um, as the the end point for the first course, and then reconstruction to the present for the second course, or something like that. Because you're right, it's we are getting to the point where it's like there's just way too much to cover in the course of a year, and and a topic like this would end up at the end if they're moving chronologically, and if they're behind, they don't get it, and they get you know. Um, I had to cover a history class last year really quickly and they were um the the guy left me notes and he's like you know what you can you could probably do the lecture for the guided notes and it was the last 40 years of American history from yeah. starting with Nixon moving up to the president, the majority of which I was alive for. And I even joked, I said, I said, I can cover this because I lived through it. And, and the, it was an AP history class. And we just got, I, you know, I, I did the lecture and I talked about what I knew about Reagan and, 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 and all that. But it's a shame that that's like, you know, that's what you get out of, out of history when you've got teachers who would love to sit there and go deep with the stuff. And this would be good paired with another, another text. Um, yeah, sometimes I, I, I'm proud of the fact that we read so much in high school, but it's sometimes I am, I am a little wary of like, you know, did we really give a lot of these things justice? And is the reason I don't remember this very well is because it just, it's all a blur because we were going (laughs) so fast because we had a state test at the end of 11th grade as well. So it's like, you know, we're we're doing all these things. I think, I think this would also speak. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, this would be great at college level because, you know, with at least at UVA, they're like the NWAR courses, which are like a specific um, topic. Like if you had a semester long course that was like Jim Crow America, mm-hmm. and then you were able to pair it with like, you know, readings, like firsthand accounts, this and other, like that's the perfect 
way to do this, I think. Give it time, pair it with history, pair it with fiction as well as, you know, um, first-hand accounts. Like, yeah, I think that'd be great. You mentioned Edward. My wife's ears perked up. You mentioned Edward. She she was an English major. She was an English major, and she minored in anthropology. She married a nerd that she dusted out from the uh, Egyptian's hand. So I would, I would, I would put this uh, definitely a college course. This is this a special topics college course, definitely. Survey of American the twentieth century, probably. This might work for like AP English. Honors English, upper level, upperclassmen, that sort of stuff. I don't think I would teach this to the sort of average student. I'm not trying to insult those students. It's just I don't know if they get it. It's on a level that that requires you know that requires a certain amount of background and and things like that. Um, and and it would be for those students who really want a challenge in their reading after reading other, other books or are wanting to go deeper. But yeah, I think you're right about the college. I think it's definitely worthy of its, um, of its fame though. Yeah. Would you say? I don't disagree. Okay, cool. Well, I guess that puts, I know why the cage bird sings by Maya Angelou to bed. Uh, before we go on to the next part of the episode, I want to reiterate that anybody who's got comments or wants to further the discussion, please do. Um, we've been getting a couple comments here and there and, and in emails. Um, we'll probably read them next. We'll probably compile a few, maybe read them next episode. But this is a discussion, like I said, that we were touching on topics that are courses in and of themselves. And uh, if you've got a perspective you want, or you want to add something to what we were saying, or refute something we were on us, we were saying, please do. Um, I Stella gets tons of mail on her on her show. Uh, my shows get some, maybe every once in a while I get an email. Uh, That's so sad. Lately, it's been some spam about somebody wanting to market something through me, and I'm like, what? <laughs> Have you ever gotten that comment email? It's like, I'm doing um, a thing, but it's, it's some spam crap. Is it a prince that needs your help? No, no, there's nobody in my... No, <laughs> no, I, think, I think the entire country in Nigeria realizes that I'm broke anyway, so... Um, oh, so, yeah, so at, at the end of every episode, we have to reveal our next book. And Stella, it's your turn, so what you got for me? It is. Well, to talk, Well, actually, I realized as I was reading this book and things happened that I didn't want to have happened, um, that basically we had spun out of control and we're <laughs> in a very sad cycle of books. Let me clear my nasal passages. <laughs> We've got oh, that yeah. podcast. Anywho. <laughs> we're, we're both sickly, apparently. <laughs> I think this is allergies. But yeah. Oh, mine so we were in a, a sad cycle, and I told Tom after yelling at him one morning, true story, uh, that I I needed to pick, it like, strengthen their resolve to pick a happy book. Tom's under the impression that I'm going to make 
hop on pop. (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid, listeners, that is not what I'm going to pick. It's green eggs and ham? For next time, Tom will be reading it in the original French. I will be reading it in the uh, translated Latin. We are going to be covering Les Petits by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. The Little the Prince? The Petit, The Little Prince, yes. Okay. That's a, <laughs> what you said like that, sir? I have never read it. <laughs> this will be interesting. Yeah, this is definitely cool. All right. Yeah. Okay, are you okay? It wasn't hop I, on the oh, pop? I am perfectly I am perfectly fine with that. Um okay. and uh and um I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. And that'll just about do it. So thank you for, for coming on and and uh and and getting through this with me. I was <laughs> I thought I personally thought it picked up as we uh as we went along. I apologize for being so uh stilted in the beginning there. No, I think, uh, well, I think any podcast you sort of have like a warm up situation. Yeah. Um, and this one was, this one, this is a challenging book. So mm-hmm. it's understandable. Right. You did a good job, Woody. Don't you? Don't be down on yourself. Go out on yourself in the junkyard. Build a community. All right. And uh, thanks again for, for listening. Don't forget to go to the Facebook page, uh, leave us reviews on iTunes, and you can email us with any comments. And until next... Why are you doing that? Shouldn't we have this outro? What are you doing? We're going to record the outro. <laughs> I'm well, just you're basically trying... saying everything the outro has to say. Okay, continue. Continue. We will be back in a month with our next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. Put down the Dorito and pick up a book. The Dorito? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you're going to be a couch potato, don't eat the potato chips. Read a book. Be a book potato. Be a book potato. That's interesting. (laughs) Oh, heaven. You can eat... You can eat Doritos while reading, though. No, no, no. Because Doritos have a duct to them, and it's going to get all over the pages, and the library doesn't want your grime. You don't want the grime in your personal library. Please. Emily is is, is pounding her fist in triumph right now. <laughs> Thank you. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link, 
Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcast. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode. Thank you.